You know, love is a strange concept and a strange thing, ultimately. Love usually creeps up on you when you least expect it. Sometimes when you've given up on love and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. But a strange thing happens, too, with love is that sometimes it can go away just as mysteriously as it came. All of a sudden, you find, what happened? I'm, there was a time when I was just feeling that love, and now it's just gone, And here, as we look at Revelation chapter 2, we're going to see a situation whereby Jesus says to his people, you guys don't love me the way you did before. You've left, you've fallen from that place of love. And I think in looking at his remedy of the problem of love that's disappeared, um, we learn a lot about our relationship with him, but we also get some real insights into love, period. It's something that is to be such a vital part of our lives, and there are some general principles that we can see here that will help us to have some insight into the nature of love, and especially love as it, as it fades, love as it disappears. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're starting Revelation 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor in the first century. John, John wrote this because Jesus told him, take this message to the messengers of the seven churches. And it's translated angels, but the word means messenger. And so as we discussed last week, I think it was he was told to give this to the leaders, the pastors of these churches so that they could pass the message on. And over the next seven weeks, we will go through all these letters and see what he says to not just these seven churches, but to all churches. Every, everyone who calls themselves a Christian and who's involved with other people can see elements of, of all of our lives and, and certainly of all churches in these letters. Now, in going through these letters, I, I'm not going to spend time going through the what's called the church history um, theory of these letters. There are people, uh, Dr. C.I. Schofield in his Bible um, promotes the idea that these letters, rather than being about one particular church each time, that, that what Jesus was actually giving was a prediction of the history of the church. And according to Schofield's scheme, each church here represents another segment of church history, bringing us up to the seventh one, the church at Laodicea, which they would say characterizes um, our age. Um, To me, it's kind of a stretch. Uh, You can reverse engineer it and come up with ways in which each of these are sort of characteristic of a different era in church history, but um, and so that may be valid, but to me, when I look at these letters, it looks like they're all written to me. It looks like they're all written to us. And so they all apply to the church of Jesus Christ in every situation. They were written literally to seven different churches. Um, and the reason why he picked those churches, as I said last week, probably because each of these seven churches existed in a different postal zone of that um, segment that that part of the Roman Empire, and so um, Ephesus being the first was the closest to where John was on Patmos, and then the seven 
seven different postal regions would be in a clockwise direction and cover Asia Minor that way. So, so really these were written to a province, individual churches within the province, just to pass them around. No doubt each church received all the letters, though, and, and the more I read them, the more I realize how relevant they are. So what we're going to look at, and you know, if you're, you want to get into the whole history thing, you can read about it in Schofield's reference Bible, but um, what, what I want to focus on is what God is saying to us, um, not to look at what he said to people back then. Um, and so this first church, the church in Ephesus, the church where John used to serve as the pastor, he was ministering there when he was sent in exile out onto Patmos for the remainder of his days. Um, it's the first church, logically, that he addressed. It was the capital of that province of the Roman Empire as well. But let's just look at what he says, and you're going to see that it centers around this concept of lost love. To the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. Again, he identified those stars in his hand, in his right hand, as being these messengers to the churches or these pastors. And as a pastor, I appreciate the imagery of him holding me in his hand. Often when you're serving the Lord, you feel really alone. You just feel like, man, nobody gets this. I'm put in the spot of making tough decisions and people will turn on you. And, and this reminder from him is that, no, I'm not standing way off just blasting you. I'm holding your leaders in my hand and they're together there. And I am in the middle of the lampstands, which represent the churches. So he's not coming from above us to blast us. He's saying, I'm with you. I'm holding you, and I am in the middle of the church, of all the churches. And so he says, he says uh, I know, first of all, in verse 2, after identifying himself, he says, I know your works. That word know, Ido in the Greek, literally means I see. I see what you're doing. I see what you're working so hard at. And he goes on and describes it as your labor. That means like a hard labor. The word comes from a root that means to cut. It's like, man, I see how much, how hard you're pushing, how much you're straining, how hard you're working. I see your patience. That word means that you stay. You're, you hang in there. You just keep at it like a bulldog. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. When you see people doing bad things, it just drives you nuts. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You go after somebody who claims that they represent God and you show where they're wrong and it becomes clear that, that they're phonies. And you have persevered. You hung in there. You have patience, again, same word as before, and you've labored, same word as before, for my name's sake, and have not become weary, or literally have not collapsed and fallen over. So, so far, so good. And, and often when we are working, when we are doing the things that we need to do, and we feel like no one notices, 
it would be a great comfort for God to say, I see what you're doing. No one else does. No one else appreciates all that you're doing. No one else appreciates what you're giving, how you're serving, how you're praying. Uh, you know, you may think that you're completely out of the limelight in all of that, but God says, I see it. However, he isn't saying anything to condone what they're doing. He's simply acknowledging what they're doing and saying, yeah, you're trying to do good things. You're trying to serve me. I, I see that. I get it. But he says, and here's the heart of the passage, verse 4, nevertheless, or really, but I have this against you, or I have against you, or I am setting myself against you. And here's the thing. You have left your first love. Your first love. First is the word protos. It can refer to the prototype, the initial one, but it also refers to first in, in value, first in quality. There's something in your life that has caused you to actually leave that initial love, that love that matters most. And that word for left is the word ephiami in the Greek. It's, it's a word that means to put away from you. The word is used several times to refer to a person divorcing their spouse. It's divorcing them. It's putting them away. And, and that's why he's using the imagery here. You're divorcing your first love. It's also the word that John uses in 1 John 1, 9 when he says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The word there for for forgive is the word of me also. He's basically saying, I'm taking your sins and I'm divorcing them from you. I'm putting them away from you. I'm pushing them out of the way. Now he makes this allegation, you have done that to your first love. Now let's continue through the passage and we'll come back to that in a moment. He says, what you need to do, you need to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and you need to repent. That word repent is metanoia. It means think differently about. You need to change your way of thinking. And do the first works, those, those protos works, as opposed to or in conjunction with your protos agape, your protos love. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you change your mind, unless you repent. And then he throws in, it seems kind of out of place, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. No one really knows what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were, and it's not the point. You find people as early as the second century who explained that what the Nicolaitans were was a group of people who uh, followed a guy named Nicholas who from Antioch. And Nicholas was one of the original deacons who were chosen in Acts chapter 6 along with Stephen and Philip and others. And what they say is that Nicholas fell into um, some gross moral sins. I won't bore you with the details of it, but um, it involved um, polygamy and some things like that. Um, but we don't have direct evidence that that's what he's talking about. There are people who suggested that. 
There have been other people, if you look at the commentaries, who take the, the name Nicolaitan and they break it down into its basic components. Um, Nike, which is on your tennis shoes, it means conquest, Nike. And, and Laos, or laity, is a word that means people. And so if Nicolaitan, if you broke it down, conquest of the people, um, it's a lot like Balaam, which refers to, to, to uh, someone in, in Hebrew, somebody who is a ruler over the people. And so they go, it's kind of like the doctrine of Balaam, which was to sell out morality for the sake of money. Um, later at the, the, to the church at Pergamos, though, he mentions the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans both. So I doubt if they're exactly the same thing. Um, there are other people who are wanting to make this a, an attack against church authority that developed in the early few hundred years of the church when what we know as the Catholic church developed. And they take the words and say, what this is is ruling over laity, and they say as opposed to clergy, and so they would see the doctrine of the Nicolaitans as the, the ministers ruling over and taking advantage of the people. And that's certainly wrong, um, but it's kind of fanciful. That's a fairly recent invention to interpret it that way um, that comes from the traditions of uh, dispensationalism. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter what it means. The point is, obviously, these guys knew what the deeds of the Nicolaitans was, and it was something they hated and Jesus hated. So just look at it this way. There were people called Nicolaitans who were doing something disgusting, and the people in Ephesus hated what they were doing, and Jesus said, I hate it too. Now, it's kind of interesting that it comes when it does, after him confronting them, you know, telling them what they're doing, confronting them, and giving them the remedy, and then he says, oh, and you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, and so do I. But Jesus knew their hearts so well that he just wanted to come in with one more thing and, and to say, look, by me telling you that love is more important than dealing with heretics, love is more important than correcting people who are wrong and being busy with religious activity, I know, and he's going, look, I hate what the Nicolaitans are doing as much as you do, but I'm telling you, something needs to change. You need to start thinking differently. And then he says, finally, in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, and that's that word from Nike also, him who conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life. You can sit down under the tree of life that is in the middle of the paradise, which means park or garden of God. That's, that sounds good. On my busier days, to sit in God's park and eat of the fruit that he provides would be a nice thing. But what's really going on here? What has, what has created this divorce? What has created this dumping, this putting away, this situation where they don't even realize it, but all of a sudden love has been completely crowded out of one's relationship, of one's life. 
and you don't see it coming, and you generally don't choose to stop loving, but when love begins to wane, it's because other things are taking its place. And here we can clearly see this because he goes, I see what you're doing, and I suppose I should be impressed because you're doing a lot of things. You're patient. You're hanging in there. You're tough. You're strong. You don't get suckered by people. You're always pointing out everybody who's wrong, and you're showing that they're not telling the truth. Boy, a lot of activity is going on. I would suggest to you that what's going on here in Ephesus is the same thing that we face in our lives, in our personal lives and in our lives with the Lord. And that is activity, busyness can completely suffocate love. And it always will. Here's here's how it works. You start to love. Let's just take it in a human relationship. You fall in love with somebody. And now they are all that matters to you. All of your waking moments are spent consumed with thinking of and and being conscious of this person, the object of your affection, the object of your love. But when you love somebody, it makes you do things differently (coughs) because you want to communicate your love. And the best way that you can communicate your love is by various activities. So you want to take the person places, you want them to know people, you want to buy them things, you want to do things for... You You want to find anything that will allow you to say, I love you, in a way more creative than just saying, I love you. And so your actions, your choices, you even choose at some point, I'll spend the rest of my life to you, I will give you everything I am and everything I have, and there's that bond that develops, and it's all about what you do because of love. However, doing more brings greater expectations, and doing more also becomes habit-forming, And doing more runs the risk of doing what you used to do motivated by love, but now you are doing it to shut them up. Now you are doing it because you're used to, or they'll be mad if you don't, or what will people think of me, and and so, or Hallmark wants you to. And so (laughs) there are all these different motivations. You know, if somebody does something for you that's really nice, and then you just expect them to do it, All of a sudden, now they can't really do it out of love. Now they're doing it out of obligation. Whatever special things you do for another person, as soon as they start to take it for granted, now that's par for the course, and you have to top yourself. I I get a kick out of sometimes people who are young and in love, and they just keep coming up with greater and greater ways to express their love. I had some friends, some kids I knew who they fell in love, and for their, for their um, proposal, when he proposed to her, they went up to Yosemite, and they hiked up to the top of Half Dome. And when they got up to the top of Half Dome, there was a telescope sitting there. And he said, oh, I think I'll look in the telescope. And she's like, don't, you don't even know whose it is. He goes, oh, I'm just going to look here. And he looks in it, and he goes, look in there. And across Yosemite Valley... On the, on the opposite dome on the other end of the valley is written out in rocks, will you marry me? And her name, I won't give up her name. But, you know, and so 
she was just thrilled. And she told me about it, and they, I saw them together, and they're like, and I just go, you guys are in big trouble. <laughs> and this, this romantic guy is like, what? I go, what are you going to do for first anniversary? And I put a, a laser message on the moon. And from now on, she is not going to appreciate anything less than this effort. You brought your A game right away. Now you got a problem maintaining that kind of momentum. And I mean, sure enough, they got married. And, you know, within like six months, she called me crying and, and said he doesn't love me anymore. And I go, he loves you. You just wore him out. He overdid it in the beginning. <laughs> I said, lighten up a little. Don't, don't expect so much. But, and they're still married and doing fine. But, but, uh, but that's how love happens. As soon as you expect it, it just demands more and more. It gobbles up more and more. It costs you more and more. Next year on your anniversary, you have to spend more, spend more than you did this year. You know, next time to impress someone, it takes more than that. Well, I really think that in some sense, that's what was happening here in Ephesus. Because they started out just passionately in love with the Savior. And, and being those who, when, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he talked about, he's praying that they would begin to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. These were people who knew about Jesus' love. And yet, what happens is, I got busy. And busyness becomes the enemy of love almost every time. Busyness is what crowds out love. I, I googled the phrase, too busy for love, and millions of hits. Books and songs and lectures and, and all sorts of you know, YouTube videos and everything else focused on that. Not to mention all of the clinics and all of the extra products and everything else that they market with that theme. But here's the thing. When you let go of love as being the center, then all of the doing just keeps you going. It becomes finally about momentum more than anything else. I, Anne was talking to me this morning, and we were talking, oh, neat, I think we'll have both sides of the church opened up. And she goes, man, it'd be so cool if you could just do two services on Sunday morning and then, and then maybe do a Sunday night service for the third service. And I go, you know, I don't think I could because the only reason I can do three services is because I don't stop. If I had to take a break and then do it again, that would not help because I, I survive on momentum. I keep moving so that I don't have to stop. And if I stop, I'm not sure I can get the train rolling again. And so, and, and that's kind of, that's the way relationships are too. That's the way our relationship with God is. We feel like we have to keep going. We feel like we're afraid to let up. And then all of a sudden we realize what I have is just a shell of what I used to have. And somehow the heart has been destroyed and the activity has choked out the reality. And notice with the Ephesians, most of their work that he saw 
was involving finding other people who are wrong, finding the heretics and showing them to be wrong, looking at what people are doing that's wrong and crushing it. And, and when you have a heart for God, you do have a heart to see someone address those phony things out there that are masking as God. And there's no doubt about it, and you can feel passionate about it. However, there is no end to what's wrong, and if you spend all of your energy focusing on what's wrong, you will burn out as to what's right. Maybe some of you have gone through an experience where someone that you really love was falling into um, some particular false uh, belief system or a cult. And you're like, I want to rescue them. And so out of love for that person, you just go and study and work and, and you get all your stuff together and you're like, okay, I think I can do it. But then there's more and then there's other things and there's other ideas and pretty soon you become consumed with something that's wrong. And, and you leave that which is right. If you know what's right, you'll have no problem dealing with what's wrong. It's so easy to tell a counterfeit when you are intimate with the original, and yet there are people who sacrifice their love relationship with God in order to just go and chase down these rabbit trails of all of the heretics, and it wears you out. It completely sucks the love out of you, and you start looking smart, and you start looking right, and you start looking like a powerful debater, but ultimately... What you look like isn't love. And you know why is this so important? The Apostle Paul, when he was writing about spiritual gifts, in that great passage in 1 Corinthians, beginning with chapter 12, he solves a lot of issues, brings up a lot of other issues, talks about what God wants to do through His Spirit in our lives and the glory of all that. But in the middle of the passage, he plops in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians that great chapter on love, where he says, look, it's great that you guys are speaking in tongues. That's really cool. That's good for you. It edifies you. But I don't care if you speak with the tongues of men and angels. If you don't have love, it's just clang, clang, clang. It means nothing. And he goes, you have faith, and God's doing great things through you, but if you have so much faith that you could move a mountain, but it doesn't look like God's love, you're nothing. If you give your body to be burned, if you give everything you have to the poor and you don't have love, it profits nothing. Zilch, zero, empty, nothing. And so he, he says, this is the important thing. This is the first thing. This is the protoss. This is the beginning. This is where it all starts. But it wasn't just the New Testament that invented this idea. When Jesus talked about the Old Testament and the law, and they had all those hundreds of laws and rules and regulations, and somebody came to him and go, what is that all about? And Jesus said, well, let me give you the Cliff Notes version to the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, this is the same thing, love his people. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. He said, if you do that, you got the Old Testament down pat. So, if that's true, can you see how dangerous it is to miss the point of life, to move away from love because your business, your busyness, 
Your activity is strangling you from enjoying a relationship that was designed to be pure and free and graceful and gracious. And it's such a danger to do this. It's such a danger to allow this to happen in our lives. And we need to be very aware of this because the result was, as as he said to them, hey, if you don't change... I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. He's in the middle of the lampstands. Now, he, he's not saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to get your lampstand and I'm going to slam it into the trash and I'm going to spit on it. I'm going to come and I'm going to break it up and ruin it. No, as he stands in the middle of the lamps, he desires for the lamps to give light. And he says, if you keep going the way you're going, if something doesn't change, one time I'm going to come and you're going to be burnt out. You are going to have burned yourself up completely. And activity always leads to burnout, ultimately, when the love goes. And I, I see him as sadly saying, this one's burned out. It can't give light anymore. It's not providing an example to anyone. It's not reaching out any longer. It's just not serving a purpose, and I'm not going to do it a favor. It, I'm not, he's not saying that, oh, you'll lose your salvation or he'll shut down your church or something like that. He's just going, when you're not given light anymore, all you're doing is a flurry of activity, you're not doing any good. You've lost your purpose. You've lost the reason why you're here. And so this is something that we should take very seriously. It's a very serious warning that can happen to us, and we all need to ask ourselves, where is our love, that first love, that place where love is preeminent in our lives? Now, his remedy for it, you've left your first love, you've divorced your, your most important love. And then he says, first remember in verse 5, memory, remembering, is something that you do best when you stop doing everything else. So by saying this, he's saying, would you just stop long enough to think backwards, to look at where you once were and what you've become, and to ask yourself if there's something that hasn't, hasn't been lost along the way? Is there something that's dying out? Is there something that's burning out in you? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then secondly, repent. Think differently. And do the first works. Now, in the beginning, and looking at those earlier verses, I was saying the whole problem is we do, 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 do. Now he goes, okay, remember, repent, and do. But this is a different word for do. Before, the words for work are always the word ergon, which is what someone does for a living. It's like, this is your occupation. This is who you are. But now he uses the word do, poieo, which is a word that means to create. Or it's the word that, that Paul uses when he says, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It's, we get the word poem or poetry from this word. It's the idea of actually taking something and designing it. But then he says, do or design or create your first, your protos, your most important, ergon work. In other words, don't just accept the role that you've always played, 
It's time when your love is waning to reinvent yourself, to take a look at your life, take an assessment, ask yourself, what am I doing? How am I spending my time, my money, my energy? And is my love really at the forefront? And if it isn't, to say, I need to start over. I need to create who I am based on that love. And to, and to as he says, to do those first works, those first things, the idea is make sure that you are taking care of the things that are most important. Stephen Covey wrote a book years ago called First Things First. It was kind of a follow-up on his book on Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and enjoyed both of those books. But First Things First challenges us to the idea that we need to see what the most important things are and make sure we get those done. We need to guard ourselves against a bunch of trivia filling our life to where now there isn't time for those first things, for those most important things. Covey um, uses the illustration of a guy who has a big jar, open mouth jar, and he has some big rocks, and he has some smaller rocks, and he has some gravel, and he has some sand, and he has some water. And he starts out by taking the little rocks and the sand and the gravel and putting them in, and then the little bigger rocks. By that time, with the water, there's no room to get even one big rock in the jar. But then he demonstrates, and I've done this just to see if it works, and it does, put the big rocks in the jar first, and then the little smaller rocks, and then the gravel, and then the sand pour in the water, and it all fits fine. And life is that way. When we neglect to put the big rocks in, we end up overflowing with sand and gravel and water, and we haven't done the first things, the things that matter most, the things of love. And so what he is calling, Jesus is calling this church to, is what he calls each of us in our lives to as well. What have you become? Who are we? Where is the love that was once there? Whether in a relationship with your friends or with the Lord, the, the problem and the remedy are the same. Too much activity will render you loveless and burnt out. It's just that way. And we, we want to be useful, so we take on everything. I was reading a book this week, and, and the author was saying that people who are chronically busy, people who are workaholics, are almost the same as lazy people. And I thought, what? I resent that as a workaholic. <laughs> if there's anything I am, it's not lazy. But they said, no, here's the thing. Lazy people don't do anything because they don't really see anything that's important enough to do. They look at everything that people want them to do, and they just go, I can't do all this, so I'm not going to do any of it. And you just get the remote control and, and do what you're going to do. But they said, a person who's chronically busy, who tries to do everything, has the same problem. Except you look at, I have so much to do, I better do it all. I got to do it all really quick, and I have to run myself to death trying to do that stuff. And this author said the common element between a lazy person and a, and a chronic workaholic is that both individuals lack intentionality. 
both individuals lack a sense of priority. Not being willing or maybe not even having the courage to decide this matters more than this, so I will say yes to you and I have to say no to you. And many of us are driven by being so obsessed with wanting to please everyone and we get crushed anytime someone judges us or turns against us that we just burn ourselves out trying to make everyone happy and it never works. And when you're lying there in the street ready to die, then they look at you and go, see, I knew it. See, that's, that's who you are. When in reality, instead of being slaves to our to-do list, we might be wiser to start a big, long not-to-do list and begin to figure out what doesn't need to go in the jar right now, to, to find out what isn't worth spending my money or my time or my effort worrying about who doesn't need to be placated. Who can I just say no to? Because if we don't learn to do that, then our first love, Will, be, will become something that goes on the back burner somewhere because these other loves are so loud and so demanding and so manipulative. See, our first love doesn't beat us over the head when we're not loving. He just sits there and waits. He just loves us, continues to love us, but you know, he's like, love doesn't work by forcing it on you. If it worked that way, I would have forced everyone to love me and Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But there's something that happens when people can choose to love or not to love that's more beautiful than, than even innocence and perfection. And, and that's what he wants from us is for us to understand how much he loves us, how pleased he is with us. But we have to put that first. Sometimes it might mean stopping everything and spending some time reflecting, even if we're afraid we won't be able to get moving again. Sometimes it may mean taking a piece of fruit and sitting under a tree in his beautiful park and, and just spending time with him, spending time evaluating what it is that we're doing to our lives, what it is that we're doing to ourselves and to those around us. But the call of Jesus in this passage is a call to stop and clear things out a bit, thin your life enough so that you can begin to design the life that God has for you, so that you don't spend your life choking out, strangling, suffocating love, but you decide that love matters more than anything else. A lot of people only discover this really late in life, and they feel like, man, why did I live my life worrying about the things I worried about. Why did I always feel like I had to tell people when they were wrong and prove it to them? What a waste of time that was. Should have just loved. I should have been loved. That's, that's what his design is for me. And so here he's going, you've left it and you're in danger of burning out and being removed, but it's not too late. Just remember, think about it. And then start to do the things that matter most. Get back to those first things. And as we, as we do that, as we, as we move our lives more toward love, we find that there's room freed up for love. We're not too busy to love anymore. 
and our relationship with God can become the center of all of that. All the rest of our love comes from His love. We love, John said in 1 John, because He first loved us. Show me someone who doesn't have time to love. Show me somebody who isn't loving. I'll show you someone who isn't receiving love. And so we start there. Let Him love you. And then in the middle of this discussion, they're like, but, 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 but what about the Nicolaitans? He goes, yeah, 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 Nicolaitans. I hate what they do just like you do, but that's not what we're talking about. Love is more important than Nicolaitans. Love is more important than anybody else who's wrong. Love is more important than anything that you're doing in order to try to somehow gain some kind of status. Love him. Let him love you. Love others with the love that he gives you and create the space to do that and build for yourself the kind of life that actually will reflect his values, what matters to him, what he calls important. And, and that's the call of our Lord. And whoever has an ear, listen to what the Spirit says. And if you conquer And every day that you choose to love instead of something else is a victory. If you conquer, I'll give you to eat from the tree of life. Your life will become more alive. And it's in the middle of the paradise, the park of God. Eternity is going to look like that. The more that we can make now look like that, the more we are saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to live our lives making them look as much like heaven as we can. And heaven looks sometimes like sitting under a tree and eating a piece of fruit. It doesn't look like people who are working so hard that they're destroying themselves and everyone around them. Take that time to love and get back to that point. Realize that's what matters. That's important. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this reminder and just for the constant reminders you give us of how much you love us. We know that you love us, but often we don't do a very good job of loving you. We're we're better at serving you than we are at loving you. And we're better at serving people than we are at loving people. But we don't want to miss the most important things, the protoss things in order to fill our lives with trivia, even good trivia. We understand that the good is always the enemy of the best. Help us to consider and to remember and to focus on that which is best. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.